Well, hello, Simon. It's already the third um, episode of Synchronized and the official second one. And I think we've got a great guest uh, today, so maybe you could introduce him. Okay. Hi, Ferry. Good to see you there. Um, tonight we're, we're interviewing Jonathan Furstenberg, an old friend who I met first when he was working for Music Box, but he has a very long and distinguished history in music and production music in particular. So it's a great honor to introduce Jonathan. Hi, how are you? Hey, Simon. Hi, Ferry. Great to see you guys too. Hi, Jonathan. Great to have you here. Well, we're, we're all, uh, hope you're all doing okay with COVID and everything there. I know it's been quite a nightmare, and I imagine this podcast may have been born out of that. It, it certainly was. We're stuck at home, Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> so we had nothing better to do, so we thought it was a great idea. <laughs> great, great. So, but Jonathan, it's, it's great to have you here. Sorry, Simon. I was just going to check, check uh, Jonathan, you're all right with the fires and everything, everything you're well away from the fires down there? Thanks for asking. You know, the uh, the sky is pretty smoky. Uh, we smell it on and off, and uh, but it's really terrible for a lot of people in California. So um, our hearts go out to all of them, and it's just part of living out here in, in California, you know, just the nature of the nature. Is it still safe for you guys to, to, to go out, or do you have to stay in right now? No, it's it's safe to go out. We live in downtown Los Angeles, and there aren't too many fires around here. They're mostly up north. There are some east, but we're doing all right here. Uh, the air isn't great, and of course, walking around or going places during COVID is always tricky by just for that. So, uh, But we're doing all right. Thanks for asking. Great. So maybe Jonathan you could start off by just telling us briefly about what you've done, your career, and uh, how you arrived where you are now. Okay. Well, maybe I'll start from present and work back. Okay. Um, basically, uh, right now, I have a company called Three Ear Music Group, and there are three parts to it. One, I'm very involved with acquisitions, uh, the sale and purchase of music catalogs, publishing music rights. And I got going in that business mostly when I was at Universal Music Publishing Group, where I started the music library for Universal before BMG, uh, before Universal bought BMG. And then that library just folded into First Common Killer Tracks uh, and is now UPM. Um, so I got very involved. I was able to bring in several catalogs uh, and bring them to the publisher. And we just expanded the, the catalog that we had. We expanded our clients, the uh, licensees that were using those catalogs. And we were able to bring that out. And uh, they're, to date, all very successful catalogs. Uh, I then went on to um, uh, Olay. And I was the senior VP for uh, strategic development, which included bringing them all kinds of catalogs for sale and purchase. And from there, I would, then I spent some time at Music Box, and I actually brought that catalog to Olay for the acquisition. And then I went on my own because I said, this is something I can do. Uh, I'm a total composer advocate, so I could make my own rules about how important it is for music catalogs to advance and grow and have those five-year plans so that they could see the future. 
um, plan for the future. And so I've been doing a lot of that, selling to all kinds of catalogs. You know, there's there's no catalog that isn't ready for sale, uh, but not everybody's ready to sell. And then there's all kinds of sale. They're selling just the assets of a catalog, and then they're selling the operation. So there's a lot of opportunity for composers and catalog owners to advance their careers through some kind of a partnership, uh, some kind of investment or um, distribution agreement with them. So very active in that area. That includes not just music uh, production libraries, but also well-known copyright catalogs and uh, parts of catalogs, pieces of rights. So it gets quite, uh, it's quite a lot of fun uh, bouncing all, those, all that music around and finding buyers. A lot of buyers are very interested in expanding their own models. Uh, a lot of publishers, I've sold catalogs to publishers that were well-funded, and they needed to spend that money. But more importantly, they wanted to have a production arm because most publishers don't have a production arm. So the music production library being acquired by a larger publisher is a really a, a great opportunity for them. Uh, the other thing that I do as part of 3 Year, I do a lot of consulting. I get a lot of calls um, with music production uh, catalog owners, and we know that the road is tough. Um, I don't think anybody wakes up in the, the morning when they're 15 or 18 or, and say, I want to build a music production library and get into that world, <laughs> because we know that what comes first is just your passion for writing, composing, and then what happens is you end up with a few cues and somebody licenses one of those cues. And the next thing you know, you've got 100 cues and 200 and it keeps growing. And so what do you do? You start licensing that. You start going out and trying to get people to, uh, to license that music for sync. Which brings me to the third point, uh, the third part of Three Ear, which is uh, a newly formed division called REP, R-E-P. Because what happens on all these phone calls with music catalog owners and rights holders is I have all this great music. I can write anything. I can respond to any uh, search. I can nail any bag musically. But I don't have the time to be on the phone and network and make all the calls and do everything that it takes to sell my catalog. I, I, I don't have time for the admin or the marketing or the PR or the metadata. What I want to do is write. So as much time as it spends for a composer to finish a track, a cue, a song, the kind of dedication that takes. Also, the same goes for the sales reps out there. The kind of work they do is equally time-consuming, passionate, focused, well-directed. And what they have done, what music sales representatives have done out there, some of you may have a, a music rep that, that you've that you love because they bring in all the people that you could never meet. And no matter how many times you dialed the phone, you, you, it's not going to happen. These people, this is all they want. They want to create a network of licensees, people who will uh, send out a brief to them. Uh, the music, will, then there's a search, and then there's a delivery of the music, and then there's the license. Um, so that's what I've done. I've created this this rep because uh, uh, also music catalogs can't afford to pay 30, 60, 80 US dollars uh, to a independent rep uh, to have their own rep. So we've made it so that it's a very nice model where 
I hope I can talk about this for a second. People, uh, a music catalog will pay $1,000 per month, have their own sales rep that they can set goals with, uh, that they can communicate with, that, that works with them. There's weekly updates on, um, on spreadsheets. And the idea is just to bring another 100 people in the first month or so into the, into the network for that composer. Uh, we've seen it happen. I've had reps that have gone to work on week one, and at the end of that week, they've introduced and they've already uh, new clients to that catalog, and they've already placed uh, and licensed a queue. So this gives a person, a catalog, a chance to see what it's like to have somebody else doing that job. It's a three-month term, renewable term, and the sales rep also gets 20% commission. And what happens is after a while, when there are 10 reps and each rep has five to 10 catalogs, non-competitive catalogs within their roster, they're able to, if they get a search for a song that's not in one of the catalogs they have, they're able to use and access any of the other catalogs. So now all those catalog owners have the, the staff, a full staff of, of reps uh, working for them. So it's really a good deal. And um, so that's kind of like where I'm at right now. And I'm just uh, very grateful, you know, because I get to work with composers and creative people. And it's one thing to be a composer. And then it's another thing to start your own music production business. It's, it's really daunting. And, and, and it's a great task. It's a great endeavor. So I have a lot of admiration for music production library owners. I was a music a composer as well. My background is as a violinist, a violist, and the day the Beatles came out. Thank you very much, England. <laughs> the day the Beatles came out, I, um, I picked up the guitar. And so I spent years playing in bands and years playing in orchestras and summer stock, Broadway. I'm really a theater guy from New York. And then I got a lot of gigs as a composer writing for HBO and Discovery before they even knew to keep their own publishing. Um, so uh, I've been very fortunate to have done a little bit of everything in, in, this, in this business. When you talk about catalogs, uh, are you mainly talking then about catalogs that are owned by composers, or can it also be uh, companies that have their own uh, production music uh, catalogs? Well, you know, I'm keeping this, thanks, thanks for that question, I'm keeping this very indie. I've been approached by larger music publishers who have a catalog, and I have to say, you know, after they say, this is a great idea, this is a great I say, well, you know what? I can't represent you. I can't bring in a rep to represent you because this is really about indies. This is about the smaller catalogs, the niche catalogs, the catalogs that really, you know, get a few licenses, are able to sustain themselves, but they could use 100 more. They could use 200 more. So I don't really spend a lot of time with the larger catalogs right now. They have, they have, excuse me, they have their own staffs, you know, like if you go to APM or UPM Universal, any of these companies, they want to chapel. They've got a staff of people dedicated and each have their own niche sales thing that they do. Um, but I have found, and the feedback is that, you know, a lot of uh, people that are licensing music really like the niche and the indie catalog. They're fast, they're quick, they can move rapidly. They're not, in, they're not just collecting music to make themselves giant. 
every piece is curated. It's a very different model. So um, I'm not representing any large catalogs, although I am representing large catalogs for sale. You know, like I have a Jet, the first Jackson 5 record. I have Ike and Tina Turner Masters and lots of other uh, masters that we represent as well. But I mean, if it's a boutique label from uh, Europe or whatever, who's looking for representation in the United States, then you might be uh, a possibility to to deal with that. That might be a possibility. Yes, I'm involved with that right now. I, I do consulting work for a couple of catalogs in the UK that are looking for distribution in the US. Uh, they're not they're not interested in selling. They are startup or they're, you know, they've already established themselves in their own territories, but they'd love to have somebody distributing them and sub-publishing them in the States. Um, so I do that. I, I send out a catalog, a, a link to the catalog and an introductory letter. And then, uh, then there are meetings set up and conversations you know the 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 bigger catalog here is looking for smaller catalogs to build that, that's the other interesting thing a lot of indie catalogs in order to really be able to have everything do need to bring in other catalogs uh, you know they may you may have a catalog that's all about sports and maybe the catalog over here doesn't have anything that's sports and so they don't really try to go in that territory but they wish they could So they'll take on a catalog at a 50-50. It's a very good arrangement. And, you know, what I tell all these catalogs, look, do this, get your numbers up. The next thing you know, maybe they will acquire you. But maybe that's not even in your interest. But what could be of interest to you is that you would keep cranking. You'd keep building your catalog. So instead of the 500 tracks you have now, in a few years, you'll have 1,000 or 1,500. And maybe you'll get briefs from that um, distributor, the sub-pub in the U.S., and that'll help you grow and includes custom work as well. So I think it's a good deal. It's like, well, the catalogs here, all we want to do is go to foreign territories for the sub-pub. That's what we really find is crucial. Um, just to throw in my own two cents here, that's not always the best answer. Sometimes the best answer is just to go with an admin deal. Because all those sub-pub deals, you still get can get lost in the catalog. The numbers can work against you sometimes when you go with a major sub-pub. Unless they have a really um, a strong sales team and enough people covering the territories. Jonathan, looking ahead, do you think the uh, era of publisher-sub-publisher -publisher is something that's going to be superseded by some kind of different relationship or do you think that's set in stone and that is the way we're going to continue I mean, bearing in mind that competition is coming in from left field now with the royalty free and some of the big deals that have been done with royalty free companies within broadcasters so do you think we're going to stay with this business model or do you think this is going to change well it's forever changing right it's changed from the beginning um, what a license, what all this music was valued at is not valued the same way anymore. When I was at Bruton, which was the catalog that uh, Zomba's president, Clive Calder, bought from the Northern Songs catalog, which was the catalog that uh, Michael Jackson bought from McCartney, part of that was Bruton, the UK uh, production music library. Uh, very famous, very old and tried and true. 
Um, so they, when that uh, acquisition happened, I was tasked with being the producer of the U.S. for all the music they wanted. They wanted to put a lot of U.S. music into the catalog. When I would hire a composer, I would, uh, for an album, I would say, you know, here's the brief. I'm looking for this. The composer would say, here's what I can do. And I'd pay, we'd pay $1,000 per track hmm. for 10 tracks, 12 tracks. And if we did songs, they were about 1500 And if we did anything with more live instruments, they could be 2000 to 2500 So the budgets alone were different than just from the production side. Then when you're talking about the licensing side, yes, it's, it's kind of gone crazy. Uh, the, the catalogs that aren't royalty-free really have that to fight against. All the... Uh, ways and means that uh, networks have decided and figure out how they could get music for free. It's always been a problem. You know, free music has always been an issue. I mean, I don't blame any composer the first time out of the gate to do something for free. I did. I, I didn't. Well, let's see. No, I didn't do it for free. I got paid to actually sell my writer's share. And so that was almost like, <laughs> felt like it was free. Yeah. So I, I, I was doing a WFH, which is a work for hire, you know, write these 50 cues and we'll pay you $500. Even then that sounds outrageously rich and expensive. And it was, it felt great, you know, in the nineties to be doing that. Um, so, uh, it's a problem, but you know, I think that there are always going to be licensees and networks and people who will pay for music. Um, not to say that a person that that every piece of music is created equally there's a lot of free music that's beautifully recorded beautifully mastered beautifully crafted by a talented composer so it it all depends on what the relationship is you know i mean for trailer companies or for advertising music houses and advertising agencies they tend to go for the more custom the more formulaic composer and catalog to find what they need these are long established relationships um some years ago uh, and simon you might remember this too at music box music box was one of the very first uh production companies to really get into a hybrid model uh and 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 that was pretty amazing to be able to work 50 50 with some of these production companies so we offered part of the publishing to them uh, to instead because they weren't paying as much and they wanted to own the publishing, we worked deals where they guaranteed that we could get more placements during the blanket. We would be able to, you know, uh, be called on for custom music more. So I don't know where it's going. I, I feel as though there'll always be money in the music business. There'll always be money to be made. And, uh, so the free music concept doesn't, Mm, it doesn't like uh, scare me in the way of thinking that oh my gosh music production libraries are going away i don't you think there, do you think there are too many production music labels out there, uh, there now and there's too much music being produced well you know i years ago i started to call when i was at universal especially i started to call music assets because when you wear, work for a company like that, it's the business music. It's not the music business. And it's all about the numbers. I mean, it's all about the numbers for everybody now. But when you work in a company like that, that's really the focus. And uh, I would say that um, 
then I realized, wait a second, all this music is being, you know, handcrafted. It's coming from a, a, a perfectly pure place and a fabulous place as a creative. And so, no, there isn't too much music. There, we st I started to call it music again. There aren't too many music production libraries. As many libraries as I've listened to through the years, there are no two the same. And there are no two composers the same. You can have an action cue with, uh, you know, a rock band, an action cue with a rock band. And if everybody pitched, if everybody did the, uh, uh, that brief and sent it in, no two recordings would sound alike. And, and I really appreciate that. That's the creativity that I think separates every music library. And so I don't think there are too many. There are also a lot of catalogs that have great connections to certain licensees. There are certain catalogs that get in the door and that person that is there, either the supervisor or the editor or the network studio head, loves that band, loves that catalog, loves that composer. They have a long-lasting relationship coming through, and they'll stay with that, that catalog and that composer. There's also, like I was saying before, some of the larger independent catalogs are looking to take in uh, smaller catalogs. This is a new trend. Uh, who's going to compete with APM, UPM, Warner Chapel, BMG? Who's going to compete with those? Well, it's indies growing. It's indies growing not to just have numbers, but to cover all the genres, styles, and moods that you have to. You never want to say no as a composer, right? So you always want to get to yes, and this is a good way of getting to yes. And there's an equity that's involved in joining up with another company. There's something going on right now, and I started rep at the beginning of COVID. My wife said, "Look, what, do you, what do you, you know, do something different." And I came up with this, and it's uh, I was doing a lot of roundtables, and what I kept on hearing from catalog owners is, "Rep, we need a representative. I wish I had somebody to sell me." Um, that takes the onus off of the composer a lot and the catalog owner a lot, and leads to more time doing what you're supposed to do, which is right, right, right. Um, so I'm not, I'm not nervous about it, but I do hear the, the, the tension and the pressure with all the catalog owners I speak to, but I also hear all the passion and the joy of doing this business and the challenge of doing this business and the thrill and joy of, uh, hearing your music, you know, on TV or in a film or in a trailer. There's always that payoff that, that never feels old <laughs> so, right Simon I mean when you hear yeah, your no, music don't you get a kind of a thrill absolutely it never goes away um right. Jonathan, just just looking ahead again which is something I love to do um other than composed music is there an alternative to library music that you see evolving I mean I'm thinking of AI or some sort of hybrid of AI slash library or I mean do you see something like that coming in and, and changing the landscape well, definitely, you know, and anything that's adding to the landscape is going to be changing the landscape. So I, I do hear that. I've been involved with some AI uh, from the early days of AI that would compose a piece of music based on humming something into the computer, into, you know, a recording device. And then the next thing you knew, the keyboard was playing it, and then it was doing uh, counterpoint and harmony. And it was like, oh, my God, there's, you know, a, a cue that's growing out of somebody humming. <laughs> um, 
that uh, I'm sure is going to have a place. I'm sure it will, because I don't think that's going to be the same. It's like, you know, it's not a human composing machine. So I don't know, you know, what the emotional effect of that music would be. I suppose if you go back in later and you do a, a, a kind of mix on that music, you can do dynamics so that it does sound like somebody wrote it. Um, I don't think there's any way of getting away from that. I, I'm sure at some point there's going to be an all AI music library. I don't see why not. I know of a company, that's what they basically are doing right now. They're not mainstream, but they're building a catalog. And based on, I don't know how, what their sales model is. I don't know if it's like, you know, this is royalty free or because this is AI, it has a certain algorithm that's going to mean something different to people. I, I don't know enough about it to really say, I just know what I heard. I didn't like that much. So I think it has a long way to go. Yeah. Interesting question, of course, is who is the composer then? Is that the, the guy who wrote the software or is it the guy who owns the software or is it the algorithm itself? Any combination thereof, I would think. And that's, you know, so what, the other question is what's going to happen with PROs in the future? How is that going to be? How are they going to monitor that? How are they going to write a check to an algorithm? Uh, somebody's going to own the rights to that piece of music i don't know how much that'll change but you know there's so many things going on in the admin world right now too people starting their own collection their own performance rights organizations uh all trying to figure out how do i get paid for every second my music is on the air is broadcast how do i get paid for all the non-broadcast music so there's all kinds of ways of tracking. You all know we've been through all the fingerprinting and the watermarking, and nothing is stuck to the point that's universal. That will happen. I do feel that will happen. Maybe that'll be through AI somehow. It'll force it in some way to, to make it happen. But that's the biggest thing. Rights holders are always looking for their the rightful amount of royalty, and it's it's the constant challenge, constant challenge of chasing after your your rightful revenue stream income, you know. Interesting times uh, right now because, of course, uh, because of COVID, we hear the stories from all the PROs around the world that the income is going to drop significantly the coming year because they have less income. I think that if there yeah. was a scheme whereby the income would be paid much sooner to the rights owners, it would be a different industry. Exactly. I mean, I've spoken to somebody, a couple of people who are working on that, where you don't wait your, for your quarterly payment to come in. You're actually paid for the music that you write and you put on air. So a lot of things have to happen before something like that happens. But it's in the works. None yeah. of these things, nothing in our business. I mean, it'll. you know, you had a Moog and then you had a DX7. Think about how far we've come. So nothing, everything progresses. Um uh, you know, when I think about like how the changes are that I've seen, we've all seen in the music business and in the music creative part with the, with the samples and with the drum loops and with everything and anything you can do, there's anything you hear, you can do it in your home studio 24 seven. You don't go out. You don't know whether it's snowing or raining out there. You're trapped. You know, I call composers a lot and they always say, uh, 
hi, uh, you know, it's Jonathan. How you doing? I, I hope I'm not interrupting anything. And I, a lot of times I get, are you kidding? <laughs> I'm just like stuck in here. I don't know what's going on out in the world. So it's, uh, so I have a lot of respect for, for composers doing what they're doing every day. I, I spoke to a friend, an engineer friend of mine, Jonathan, at the be- sort of two weeks into COVID. And I said, how, how are you doing? You know, how's life changed? He said, you're kidding. It's exactly the same. I'm in my studio <laughs> mixing an album. I mean, nothing has changed. And I mean, speaking, right. you know, speaking for myself, that's what I'm most of the time in my studio and uh, nothing has changed. Really. Of course, outside it's chaos, but, but for us creators, it's, uh, it's noses to the grindstone, really. Jonathan, right. I just, can I ask you just maybe a more frivolous question, but what, what, what would you say are the best and the worst things to happen to library music during your career? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, I would say the worst thing I've seen is that the work for hire fees have gone down. Yeah, that's bad. That's yeah. bad, and it's not just bad for the composer because the composer get paid a thousand dollars versus the composer that's getting paid three hundred dollars is the cue. $1,000 you could bring in percussion live. You can bring in live players. $300, you you really limited. And you have to either do all the playing yourself, which is fine. You know, a lot of, obviously, composers are multi-instrumentalists. But there's nothing like having somebody come into your studio and add a flavor that you, you know, that's what they're hearing in the music. Uh, guitarist, percussionist, vocalist, what you name it, whatever instrument it is, it's going to add a different level and flavor to your cue. Um, so I think that that's a sad part that that I've seen. And composers, I've worked with composers. There was a composer I paid a thousand dollars a cue, and now they're getting three hundred a cue. And so it's 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 a challenge for the artist composer themselves to have to do this. Luckily, it didn't happen overnight. I don't think anything's really happening overnight. Uh, the best thing that's happening is that more people are expressing themselves creatively. More people are finding out that I write a piece of music and then I share it with my wife, my kids, my friends, my family, then with people that maybe can license it. And I find out that people really are responding to my music. I'm getting six out of 10 people liking my music rather than four out of 10 people. So I'm inspired and I'll go out and write more. And so the good, so that's really great, except it's kind of the, you know, it's that mixed blessing. And now I have a catalog of the 500 tracks and I'm in the music production business. So um, I've, I've spoken to composers, a lot of composers who have gotten out of it, who have let go, who have gone and done different models. I mean, not every composer is going to stay a composer in their career. I didn't. I was writing music for off-Broadway off musicals and uh, rock bands. I had a band with a lot of original material and then working for all the networks writing and all that. And I hung it all up, uh, basically, when I, and I became a suit, what we call a suit. You know, I went to work for the large publishers, and I kind of let that music composition fall to the wayside. There are composers I'm talking now, talk to now that have been in it for their entire lives. I mean, they're 40 or 50 years old, and they're turning their back on that catalog and want to do something else. So that's something that's very interesting. People do change their direction, um, 
And this is from catalogs who have good numbers, who really have good responses. They just feel the need to do something else. Uh, they're either tired of staying locked in their, in their um, studios or they have discovered some other way, something else to pursue. And that works for the writers that sell as well. A lot of the catalogs that sell, you know, I have a production music catalog, but all I really want to do is compose songs now. That's all I want to do is I'm pitching them to the artists. And so that's what they do. Um, so I don't know if that's a good and a bad, you know, both sides. There's, there's probably a list of 10 on each side, if, oh. if I was to put it to paper. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> so, Well, have you seen a change? Simon, have you seen, you know, how has it affected you in all these years? So, well, I've always combined writing music for the theatre, television and film with Music Library. In fact, my entry point, Jonathan, was um, back in the early 90s where my agent said to me, you need to start a library. And I said, why? He said, well, I've just done a deal for a major series where they only had the budget for the theme tune, but they didn't have a budget for the incidental. So... Mm the composer was able to bring that out of his bottom drawer. And so that was my entry point. And, and I, I, I've just tried to keep a good balance and to keep my headspace good so that um, everything's fresh, really. Of course, there've been huge changes in the library business. Um, mm -hmm. and, and for myself, I was mainly a library composer for many years. It was only really when we first met that I had become a library owner and administrator. So that, that's a massively steep learning curve as far as I'm concerned. I, I'm still learning very much. Um, right. Jonathan, can I ask you another question? Perhaps, perhaps uh, is there any way of defining a piece of production music? What is it that defines production music from something else? Is it a sound or is it a contract or what is it exactly? Well, it's a, uh... It's like a regular library. When you go into a library, uh, you want to find information out on anything that's on your mind. You can find that in the library. So uh, music production library is basically the exact same thing. You know, it's, uh, I learned about library when my first job, well, I came to New York. I, lived, I grew up in New York. I, then I spent a lot of time in D.C., uh, Washington, D.C., and then I moved back to New York for music theater, and I had cassettes. Oh, boy, I'm really dating myself, everybody out there. I had a cassettes, demo cassettes, that I sent to all the production companies in New York, advertising companies, anybody, any music company. And I got a call one day, and this guy says, well, we really love your music. We're not looking for any composers, but we could really use a music supervisor. And I went, great. I got off the phone. I went, what is a music supervisor? This was in the... This was in the Early, let's see, that was 1840. No, that was uh, 1970, I guess. That's when that happened. And um, I said, no, 76, sorry. Okay. And I said, so they said, come to Brooklyn tomorrow and we'll show you, you know, run you through this. So I showed up at, the, at a TV studio and I went into the audio room, and that's what a music supervisor, I learned what a music supervisor does. You take an acetate, which was how music was transferred uh, in those days, and you mark it with a chalk, like a grease pencil. And as the scene is happening on this soap opera that I was working on, the engineer puts the uh, album on the, the acetate on the turntable and drops the needle, hence needle drop. And then it would go in live 
to the uh, to the performance, you know, live to tape. And so that's the so then when I needed a piece of, of action or emotion, some emotional, sad, reflective, poignant, I would have to look through a, a spreadsheet. Well, it was just a written list of what acetates had that, and then I would go and find it. That was my first introduction to the music library. And then I spent a lot of years as a music supervisor working on all different soaps, maybe eight or nine different soaps, building those libraries, realizing that every day I needed new music. I brought in hundreds of composers on the different shows. I was writing some myself, but it was never enough. I'd bring in hundreds of composers and uh, be able to uh, use their music instantly, uh, put them directly onto a cue sheet, which guaranteed them absolute they were going to get paid for every second with my stopwatch going. And uh, so it was like an insatiable beast. Maybe that's a good way to, to, maybe somebody should have a catalog name that. It's you can't stop. You can't stop building and adding music to your catalog. Um, so I'm not sure, Simon, uh, exactly what you're asking is like. Okay, the so question let, let, is, me, let me elaborate. So writing music for film or TV, you know, you quickly mm -hmm. learn that you've got to leave some space for the dialogue you can't you know so mm -hmm. traditionally mm -hmm. very early on so an accompaniment to a dialogue scene would have music down in the bases and music higher even mm -hmm. mid-free mm -hmm. of course mixing everything has changed that but uh, mm -hmm. I, I still think sometimes that when i hear it when i get pitched some music for a library that it's that it's not doesn't sound quite like library music and then you you kind of ask yourself why do i think it doesn't sound like library music surely library music is everything and, and perhaps the answer and I'm asking you really, is is that because it's not leaving any space for anything else? It's kind of telling the whole story, whereas library music is traditionally supporting music. Yeah, that that's it exactly. I mean, even on a cue sheet, the uh, and how we refer to it today is BG, background. So if you have dialogue, you don't really don't want a lot of competition with the dialogue. And so we would do a cue and, you know, maybe there's six elements and then you drop out the piano and you drop out the drums and you drop out the bass and you're just left with this pad. And the pad could go for miles. You could do any dialogue over that pad. Emotions could change, you know, you, you could do all kinds of things. You'd also, for writing, you'd also want relative key very often, you know, that's another thing that... Uh, that's important, although today it's not as important. With Pro Tools or whatever mixing tools, you can change the key of a, of a cue so that you can cross segue from one cue to another. But the question is right. Like, you know, uh, that instrumental music that was way more complex, way more melodic, way more this is about me standing up, you know, that I'm a cue, I'm a, a, a song, I'm an instrumental, is that that makes great source music, and that's what we would use for source music, music that you couldn't really just talk over except if you were in a bar or a rock and roll, or, you know, in a club or any kind of source situation. So the other thing that was really good about how you would write a cue is, is that you would give a lot of alternate mixes. Uh, that's always important. It's amazing what kind of cues come out of alternate mixes of your cue. Uh, that where you dropped everything out and all you left was the pad. Imagine if you, uh, you know, put everything back in and then you add more, you add more melody or you add more grunge or you add more elements to it. So you want to have 
now we refer to them all as stems, you know, do you have stems with your music? Yes, everybody's asking for stems. We used to call them alternate mixes. Uh, the other thing that's kind of like everybody out there probably knows this is that you can't have fades in, in uh, library music. You must button that out. A lot of times then you, you maybe want to do 30-second mixes or 15-second mixes. What happens with those is they're very convenient for promo, for a lot of network promo. They just plug those. They just drop those in. Um, you, at the same time, you know, if you, if you end up being used in a commercial spot with a 30, very often that editor is going to tear that cue that you thought was a great 30-second cue. They're going to take the full mix and they're going to break it up to the way that really matches the video, the picture. Um, but that's the other thing. You're writing outside. You're not writing to picture for the music library. So there's a certain freedom and a free form, and you don't know where it's ultimately going to end up. But you have to know that it can't be um, abrasive enough that it's going to be in the way. Although we all see all the commercials and the trailers and all these show, everything the way you do hear music, and it's got all the elements. It sounds like it's just lift a song they're using. So our ears have changed a lot, I think, to what we can hear behind uh, dialogue. And besides, soaps are a very unusual, very separate area. You know, it's not like network TV. Um, uh, those cues are, are done to picture. And so they, they can have some of the mixed elements, you know, if somebody's not talking, you can have some drum hits or a guitar a screech or a French horn, you know, blare or whatever. So it, it, it's, it's really a variety, uh, of things, um, that make the cues different. I think the mo I think the obvious one though is that you're writing in a bubble. You're writing just from what's inspiring you in your room. You're using an emotion, a style, a mood. You you, go, you know you, whatever mood you're in. I'm feeling I'm a pensive mood. I'm going to write a pensive. I'm feeling uh, very tender today, or this is very sad. What's going on in the world? And so you get inspiration. You know, so. That, that's really a, a, a beautiful thing, that there's an outlet for creativity now. At first, I was also saying, oh, everybody's got a synthesizer, and now everybody's a composer. I mean, producers would come to me and say, hey, you you got a synthesizer, can't you just crank out all the instruments on this now? And no, no, I, I don't, you can't, you don't want to. Um, you, uh, music can't be um, devalued simply because we have better equipment. Uh, it's true that we can have a full symphony orchestra at our fingertips now, um, and the sounds are hard to beat, and there are some, like some trailer companies aren't even interested in having live strings. They want, you know, some other kind of raw sound that can come through, uh, through digital uh, keyboards and software and everything like that. So, you know, the other thing is, look how far we've come just software-wise. I mean, where we were all analog, and we were writing cues all analog. Now everything's digital, and it's hard to find that analog. And now you have to dial analog in, you know, or you have to have a keyboard or something that is one of those older analog dinosaurs, which are very airy and beautiful. Now you have to dial in air in a lot of times in, in, in your music to make it sound uh, warmer and softer. I got a question um, about something you told in the introduction of this uh, podcast. Uh, I hope I quote you right, and if I don't, please excuse me. I think you said 
it's always time to sell a catalog, but the owner is not always ready to sell a catalog, mm -hmm. which I found very interesting. Can you uh, elaborate on that? Well, it's mostly coming from buyers. Buyers are saying, I'm looking for a music production catalog, and I'm sitting on knowing 100 music catalogs. None of them have talked to me about selling. But I know that if they wanted to sell tomorrow, there's a buyer out there. So I do talk to catalog owners. I say, look, you know, you have this niche that I know somebody, somebody could really use this niche uh, of, of music. Um, just a side note, uh, Simon, yours was like one of the first uh, niche catalogs that came that I learned about, you know, music for sport. Oh, right. You know, make no, there's no confusion here. I know that we could find a lot of reality in your sports. I know we could find a lot of action and tension and drama, but you you called it something. You made it something that stood out from other music production catalogs. And now I'm I'm dealing with catalogs that have followed suit, and they are called or they just deal with one thing or another. They're not trying to be everything. That said. There, you know, if a if a buyer is interested in having a music catalog because they want a production entity, let's say it's a catalog, let's say it's a bigger publishing company that has all these uh, rights, they have all these masters, or they have publishing rights, but wishes they wish they had masters. A lot of times they'll go to that production company that they've acquired and say, "Here's our 150, well, our 1500 songs. Put, make new masters out of these," and so that's a great thing for that music production catalog they're now working in a different genre but still around music and with music they're getting paid for it um the other thing that's really a beautiful thing about these hundred catalogs that don't know that there are buyers out there or that is that that's often a way to step up your presence obviously because now you do have a sales rep you do have an admin company going after their share because that's what they do. You have PR. They're doing all the PR and the publicity and the marketing that you never would do. So that's what I always, you know, you know, that's one of the reasons why Rep started. It's only the beginning phase of where this is going to go. Um, but at least that sales rep that's out there representing you can sing your praises, can really talk you up, can really uh, bring you to a different place than you are when you're working just for yourself. Uh, not everybody's ready to sell. Not everybody's interested in selling. A lot of people just are young and they want to keep going. So that doesn't enter their mind. But I know that there are buyers out there or partners out there for them if they want that. Jonathan, um, if you were, well, let's say there's a 21-year-old composer who's just finished college and he's standing in front of you. What advice would you give him if he wants to work in the world of library music? What, what would your main advice your kind of principal piece of advice be um network as much as you can you know um make those 10 calls a day to people you don't know um think big think forward you know think uh who do you want to know who do you want to talk to who do you want to who inspires you who can be supportive? Who could open a door? Um, it's not a, a job for a, a shrinking flower. I don't know if that's, you know, it's not for somebody who's timid, this business. Um, you have to be a certain, you have to have a certain aggressiveness to it. You have to have a desire. 
So that 21 year old, I would say, is this like the thing that you want to do the most? Is this like you're going to, this will kill you if you don't do it and you can't dream of doing anything else? Yes. Then that's step number one. You're already like going in a good place. You know what you want. So pursue it. I've taught college level classes about the music business, not all the details, although I do cover that. I talk about the people in the music business and what it takes to get out there. I do rules for the road, things that you have to know as a composer and as a musician and how to network with people. Uh, it's a, and I'd say you, everything you know today, you don't know everything today. There's no way for you to know everything. It's a discovery along the way. You'll never stop. There's always things you're going to be learning as you move on. So uh, if you feel like you have that magical talent and that passion that you want to create, and that's the thing you want to do the most, then do it. Um, I'm not the parent of that child, so I'm just gonna, just not going to say, well, make sure you have a good college education and all that. And I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to talk to them about the music. Do that. Do what you have to. You'll know soon enough if you've got what it takes or not. Uh, that's the other thing. Right. I, I think many people, you know, do this as a hobby and that's beautiful. And then there are people that, you know, that's not good enough for them. And there isn't a person we know out there with a successful music library or a successful music career that didn't do those things when they were 21 to like make things happen, to make sure people hear you, to put out your message, whether it's, you know, playing a, a acoustic guitar, writing that or or rock band or classical. It all takes the same drive and you all kind of get caught up in that music passion, you know, something that you can't, you can't tear away from it. You can't think of doing anything else. So I give a lot of support to those, that 21 year old to do it. And uh, yeah, you got to meet people out there. You got to talk to people. You have to collaborate. And that's the other thing that happens with the COVID uh, that I did on these roundtables. The indies need to collaborate. You need to know who who your who your not your teammates are necessarily, but people doing the same thing you are. You have all the same stories. You know, when we have all these events like the PMA or different industry events where all the music production libraries show up, it's never it's everybody's talking to everybody else because we're all in the same boat. And it feels good. It feels good to have company. We all understand what everybody's going through. So um, it starts at, you know, I talk to a lot of composers that are just starting out and, and all their writers and their part of their team are in the 20s. And it's just great to see it. It's It doesn't look that different than it did for me, you know, in my 20s. So um, that's a beautiful do you think? Do you yeah. think it's time for the indies to unite? Is that the, the story you're telling or...? I do, I do, and I know there's, there's people I'm talking to that are ex having that plan exactly um, to unite. And uh, I don't know how else to compete with the, I call them the big boys. You know, I don't know how you compete. Uh, the idea is that if you collaborate with catalogs that aren't like yours, you really expand and the collaboration becomes more interesting and exciting and there's more opportunity. Because let's face it, you can talk about the creative end all day, but you also have to have that revenue stream and you have to keep that up on an ongoing basis, right? Every day, that revenue stream has to grow. I mean, if you're going to make a living at it, right? 
It's interesting because I think uh, I've spoken to a lot of uh, people as well. And what I see is that it's very difficult for Indies to unite because there are so many different objectives that they all have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to find the right Indie too, right? Indies mean just what it is. I don't want to work with anybody. I want to be independent. That's the beauty of it. I run my own show. Uh, there are more and more I'm finding catalogs, bigger catalogs, not the majors, bigger indies absorbing smaller indies. That's the kind of collaboration I'm talking about. It starts small and it grows from there. And as long as you have the, the, the bigger indie has the staff and the wherewithal to handle and to guarantee, to promise that that other indie is now going to increase their opportunity for revenue and exposure that's uh, you know that's a that's a pretty good deal because simply once again because a lot of indie composers have no idea what it takes to really make it out there as far as that sales admin marketing thing that's another hat entirely that requires almost as much time as it takes to write a cue you know so i don't know where it's all going i don't know what's going to happen <laughs> we keep going that's all that's true. It's just interesting because I speak to people and we see what's going on in the world. And sometimes you see that a major signs an exclusive deal with like a broadcaster or stuff like that. And then it's very difficult for other indie labels, of course, to get used on, on those stations. Mm -hmm. so, so do you think that if, if they would combine their efforts, they would be able to um, provide an alternative to that? Well, one of the alternatives is that the majors are taking, for the first time, they're not just doing work for hires. They're not owning 100% of their, of their music. They're actually taking in catalogs that have, A, they, they hear the music before it's finished. So it's not like giving somebody $1,000 to do a work for hire. You don't know what cue you're going to get when it gets delivered, and then you have to finesse it or work with it to somehow make it work for the buyer's catalog you also get the benefit of um uh being part of a catalog the um you know the the major that's bringing in a smaller catalog is also inheriting very often inheriting that smaller catalog's clients so it's very serious about you know in the acquisition market some some sales are just uh that we progress simply because the client uh, is that has a hundred client a uh, hundred clients the buyer and the the, the seller has two hundred um, clients or licensees and so that they get they want that you know the larger ones want that so they do fifty fifty deals that's a very new thing so anybody out there who has a catalog that is a way to go you can uh, make an introduction an introduction of your catalog to any of the majors and see. If there's a 50-50 deal out there, you can do that with any other catalogs too. the indies. There's a lot of larger indies that people can send their music to send their catalog to the one offs don't work. You know, I mean, if you have here's a, I get a lot of emails, you know, here's a song I just wrote. Can you place it? I, I can't. I can't do that. A, I don't really do licensing like I used to do. And uh, that's really a professional job. That's a relationship between the sales rep and the and the buyer and the licensee you know that's the beautiful thing about this uh, business all the relationships no matter where you are you know jonathan just just um 
we have touched on this a bit, but how what do you how do you perceive the landscape in relation to the royalty free libraries? Are they are they a serious threat to the traditional library business model, or are they just going to coexist with us quite peacefully and take their bit of work and we keep ours? How, how do you see that developing? Well, it's been developing for a long time, so I hope that it takes as it keeps going at the slower pace that it does seem to go. I mean, there are these big changes that happen all of a sudden, but it's they didn't really happen all of a sudden. They something's been leading them up up to that for years, and then it happens. Um, I don't think that there'll never be a time when it's all royalty free music. It just can't. Um, it, it won't happen. Um, I'm, well, I, as I'm saying that, I'm praying. You know, well, I, mean? yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. Okay. Uh, that that that's how it will revert. I think there'll be ways around it. And there's always people that realize you can't ask for a piece of music without paying for it. It's, there's always going to be that model. So, just a follow-up question to that, Jonathan. Do you think people involved in the traditional library music are as aware as they should be? of the threat of the royalty-free model. I mean, I've, I've kind of feel that some people don't even know it really exists. And, and there are huge programs in Britain now that are signing deals mm -hmm. with royalty-free that, that does bring yeah. them into, into the mainstream. I, I wonder if you think people ever got their eye off the ball a bit. Well, I think, yes. I do think that people aren't looking at that because it does happen in slow motion until it ha happens. Then it, then it's like, whoa, that was my client. Now my client's going to royalty-free music. What am I going to do? I just lost my revenue. I I would say that the going back to something I said earlier when I said that I used to call it assets, I think I started calling it music again when I realized that there were way more opportunities out there, there's a constantly new broadcast markets, there's constantly new, I don't mean broadcast more, I mean new production. People are producing, I mean, just podcasts, for example. Right now, everybody's going after the podcast market. It's a new market. Um, uh, so, so I think that uh, you have to keep doing that. As, you're, as the library owner, you have to prepare, prepare for the future. I think that you may not be aware of everything happening now, but you have to like really lock in the kind of people you want to work with. You want to have that relationship with, uh, yes. One day they could call and say, Oh, you know, sorry, we're not, we can't pay you anymore. Okay. Well you have something else to fall on. You just found out that somebody's producing a new podcast or somebody's producing a made for internet TV show or somebody's got a new production going on to Netflix. You know, so there's a lot of production. There's so much music out there now. And I would just say that there's so much opportunity. There's so many more things that there are places for you to plug into. You may not know about it. That's why, hence, I push rep again. Yeah. Because you may know 100 people. That rep knows a completely different 100 people. Why not have that in your camp to yeah. get you going? Why not have somebody else picking up the phone? Well, I didn't hear back from you. What can you do? Tell me. I'm, I'm ready to send you this piece of music. Let's do a deal. That's what a rep is going to do. Yeah, no composer is going to really want to be doing that. <laughs> Some, somebody told me last week, and it was really amazing. That at, at the at the moment, there are like 550 shows, television shows in production in the United States alone. Mm -hmm. And when you think about like 20 years ago or like 30 years ago, you probably had to call what 20 production companies and you knew all the people who produced television uh, shows. Now Amazon is producing, Netflix is producing, Apple is producing. That must be amazing. 
It is. You know, the reps that I talk to now are calling on different companies like Amazon and Netflix and iTunes, I mean, uh, Apple. So all these other companies are getting into production and then they have a staff and then they farm it out to all those other producers. There's documentaries. There's a lot of news programming going on. You know, if you get into a certain area, then you have a good, a good shot of staying in there at a paid rate. So uh, the niche catalog is really great. Uh, don't spread yourself too thin. You're never going to supply everybody with 100% of the music needs they have. Uh, think about collaboration. Think about um, making your life easier by focusing on what you do best, composing. Um, and, um, you know, just give, give, it, give yourself that liberty to pursue your dream. Well, that's a great uh, summary of uh, our discussion. <laughs> I have nothing more to add, I might say. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jonathan. That's really wonderful to talk to you. Oh, it's great. It's great to, to hang out with you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for what you're doing. It's a long overdue service and, and model for, for music production people, composers of all kinds. So thank you for what you're doing. You're Thank welcome. you for being here. It was a privilege. All right. Thank Take you. care, guys. Okay. Be Bye. well. Bye now. Cheers.